You know, it's funny how fragile politics can be. In 2016, Senator Jeff Sessions became the first major politician to endorse Donald Trump. In 2017, Trump rewarded Sessions by appointing him to attorney general. That set off a series of events that may have changed politics in the South forever. To make a long story short, a whole bunch of scandals happened in Alabama that we won't go into, but it set up a 2017 special election between Roy Moore and Doug Jones. Now, Moore was already one of the most notorious politicians in Alabama history. He had previously been removed from the state Supreme Court, and he had a reputation as a conservative firebrand. Doug Jones was less known. The man who would become the Democratic nominee was best known for his role in prosecuting a man who had bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, killing four little girls. Jones was a long shot from the start, but a series of allegations against Moore turned the race into a toss-up, and Jones' surprise victory reshaped our understanding of politics in the South. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm R.L. Nave. And I'm John Hammontree, and today we are discussing what we're going to call the Doug Jones effect. This isn't an episode about Jones's chances in November. Polling doesn't look great for Alabama's incumbent senator right now. And his odds against former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville are much worse than they were against Moore. But Jones' surprise victory in 2017 reverberated throughout the South, uh, maybe even the nation. You could argue that the massive investment in 2018 and 2019 and 2020 in places like Georgia and Mississippi and South Carolina were driven in part because Alabama had reset expectations about what was possible in the South. Now, in 2020, there are competitive Senate races in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, Texas, and Alabama. The future of the country and the South may hang in the balance. So today we'll hear from political strategist David Mowry, who has worked with candidates on both sides of the aisle, about how 2017 changed the political strategy across the South. And in Alabama, Jones's victory accelerated a coup against the Democratic Party leadership. We also speak with Chris England, an Alabama state representative and the new chairman of the state party. He tells us about the long road to rebuilding. So let's get started on this week's episode of The Record Interview. David Mallory, thanks for coming on The Record Interview. Thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. You are a political consultant who has worked for campaigns on both sides of the aisle. You know, it's a very interesting time period here in the South. In fact, your podcast is called Now More Than Ever. So why don't we talk a little bit about what that means? You know, what what is happening now more than ever? Yeah, I think it's interesting because everybody is curious as to, like, can the the red wall be broken down in the South? You know, there's money, there's like unprecedented amounts of money flowing into both our state and to states in the region for candidates that in a previous cycle might have got like, I mean, I don't want to say laughed out of the room, but, you know, if you'd have told me that in, in 2004, 2006, that an African-American candidate, a Democrat candidate in South Carolina would be giving Lindsey Graham the hardest run that he's ever had, I don't know that I would have believed you. Yeah, we spoke with Jamie Harrison last week, actually. And, you know, I mean, it's fair to say he's raised an insane amount of money. Is that enough? Bananas amounts of money to the point where I almost think that they may not know what to do with it all or they may, you know, be at a loss for what else they can do. Okay, we've covered every base, you know, now now what do we do? And we can't really talk about this without talking about COVID because, you know, in, in some ways it stops you from doing certain traditional organizing techniques like door knocking or 
even really having, you know, a centralized field office for people to stop by and get signs and stuff like that is problematic. And so a lot of your traditional ways of doing things are probably not necessarily as effective. You know, television is, when I started in this business, GOTV stood for get on television. And now, while it's still probably your number one communication medium, you have to do more and you have to buy more in different programs and stuff to reach people. And then you have to do all the, all the digital stuff on top of it and all the, you know, text banking and, and that type of thing. And so in some ways it makes things that much crazier because uh, it's very hard to tell where your message is breaking through. Yeah. And the president's campaign, for example, has spent a lot more on digital advertising than they have on TV buys. I think Harrison's campaign, you know, just recently added another $16 million to their ad buys. And Jones here in Alabama is all over TV and Tommy Tuberville has not been so far. I heard that Harrison added something like 3000 points a week, which means that gross ratings points, you know, you you hear that, right? And a thousand points means your average person, your average voter is going to see it 10 times in that week is a thousand points. So he's added 3000 points a week until the end. And so your average person is going to see it 30 times, which is just bananas, but it may be about what you need to break through. Because like you said, I don't think I've seen a Tuberville ad on TV. I think I saw, I've seen two or three Jones ads because football's back on. Right. He's been doing ad buys during major football games and going after Tuberville's record as a coach during football games. You know, it's it's interesting programming. Yeah, which is definitely, well, and I mean, obviously, I, th- I think that Jones needs to peel people off of Tuberville to have a chance of winning. And it's weird to say that because, you know, when people say, does he ask me, does he have a chance? I say, well, yeah, he won. So obviously he has a chance, right? But the circumstances were quite different. And you know, one of the things that is clear is that Tuberville, while he has his um, foibles as a candidate, he's not Roy Moore. He's not a known lightning rod that like X percent of his own party already doesn't like and all the Democrats really don't like. He doesn't have that those years of enmity built up. And no matter what, everybody paints us, you know, the South football is really religion. And, and, you know, that's a thing that goes over the top of even politics. It's very hard to say, hey, because this guy coached for the wrong team, so to speak, you know, you shouldn't vote for him when he's representing your party. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to politics, the party becomes your football team and people kind of root for it that same way. A lot of the conversation we've been having I feel like is rooted in that 2017 special election where Doug Jones did beat Roy Moore. And this is just a theory of mine, but I don't think you see the amount of money going to Jamie Harrison, the amount of money going to Joe Espy, the amount of money going to John Ossoff in Georgia. If Doug Jones had not, you know, kind of surprised conventional wisdom about Democratic campaigns in the South in 2017. You're also seeing kind of a reformation of the Democratic Party in Alabama. You know, certainly a lot more money than they've had in a generation. You know, a lot of people forget the Alabama Democrats did hold the state legislature for 100 years. They held it through 2010. And it's really only been the last 10 years where Republicans have had a supermajority in in the legislature. They were winning statewide races certainly before that. But do you think that we are in a position where we will start seeing more competitive races in Alabama? Or are we still, you know, 100 years out from that? I don't know if we're 100 years out, but I do think that Alabama lacks the fundamentals that, say, Georgia does, where you have, you know, a, a giant urban core 
and you have coalitions of like minorities and college educated whites that kind of come together and can support. And it's almost even the population of those groups as to the, the outstate, the downstate, the, you know, the North part of Georgia in Alabama, it's like, you just don't have quite enough to push it over that hump. It's interesting. You said in a generation, like, have you ever looked at like the map of, of Siegelman winning in 98 and then the map of K winning (laughs) and it's like a mirror image. And then the map of Jones winning which looks completely different. You know, Siegelman was winning like Franklin County. And I, you know, I, th- I think Walt got like 32% in Franklin County. Yeah. Walt struggled everywhere. Yeah. Well, because he didn't have a demon of a candidate. And that's, so that's the interesting thing, right? Is that for, for years, Democrats won races by getting the base and then getting like the people that you could peel off from the other coalition or the friends and neighbors vote. Right. And now the way that you build the coalition is you get as many of your people out and you hope that they don't get as many of theirs. And and that's truly the story of Moore. I mean, the the Jones people did a great job of getting their vote out. And I I don't think that they necessarily went for voter suppression like we would think about, you know, like what that term means. It's a kind of a loaded term, but they were able to suppress his Moore's vote from normal mainline type Republicans. Depressed turnout. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Thank you, John. (laughs) And I just think that that's going to be so hard to do in 2020. And then you have the added factor of like straight ticket voting, which is just brutal. Now, you can go down and vote for somebody else of the other party, but the raw numbers are worse than when we tried that trick with Bob Vance. Who ran as a Democrat for Supreme Court. For Supreme Court against Moore in 2012. And I think that, you know, that that's one of those classic races of if you had if we had had another million dollars or we'd have had another week and a half, we probably we could actually beat more, I think. But here's the thing is that like, I think at the time we needed say 350,000 crossover votes and we got like 290. And so, because in the end, I remember standing in the, the A-loft in Soho and, you know, looking at the race and going, you know, holy cow, we could actually do this. And then somebody called me as a Republican, I won't name them, but they said, I hate to tell you this, buddy, because you did a great job, but Shelby and Baldwin are what's out. And, you know, those are like those rock-ribbed Republican counties where if we could have got it maybe to 60-40, I think the numbers are, you know, or maybe like 43. But still, it's just the the math. And elections, as somebody told me a long time ago, electioneering is really just a math problem. Does this number add up to more than this number? I think it's more difficult for Jones this year than it is for Ossoff in Georgia. I think it's a little more difficult than it is for Graham in South Carolina. Cause the other thing about Graham is, is that he's just been there forever and you just have all this BS that whether you agree with him or not, you're not going to agree with every position he took because he's taken the other side of every issue as well. And you don't have the, you don't have the North Carolina thing where they have the, this massive influx of educated, you know, voters. And then the other thing in North Carolina, and, and sorry, double back on this, but you're seeing this a little bit in South Carolina in that like Graham and Tillis have not consolidated Republicans. What I haven't seen in polling, and I haven't, I'm not privy to anything that's not public. I, I wish I was, but I'm not. But what I haven't seen is, you know, a thing where Tuberville's only getting like 80% of Republicans. That would be a problem for Tuberville. Well, and it's also interesting 
the president continues to be a lot more popular in Alabama than he is in much of the country. But the limited polling, public polling that we have seen, and Alabama is not a very easy state to poll reliably, but it does have Trump down closer to 50 percent. And, you know, when he was winning in 2016, you know, he was winning close to 70 percent of the state's vote. And so even if his turnout drops 16 percent, that still puts the state turnout probably closer to Kay Ivey's turnout in 2018. And even that is still a pretty hard number for Jones to crack. Right. And when you add in, you know, I, I hate to harp on the whole COVID thing. It's just reality in that one of the things that they were really able to do in 2017 was spend a lot of time and a lot of money knocking doors and organizing. I don't know if they can or if they're not or what the deal is, but I have not seen the enthusiasm that I saw in 2017. In 2017, when Moore won, it was like, okay, Jones has a chance, but eh, in the end, it's probably going to be more. And then that Washington Post story broke. And it was like, I think that I did at one of the TV network, one of the cable networks every day for like 35 straight days. I think it's the first time that you and I actually spoke was over the air oh, on, yeah. uh, on uh, MSNBC or CNN. I forget which one, you know, and there's other stuff going on in the country, obviously, but I'm just not seeing, you know, that level of, of enthusiasm and the amounts of money aren't pouring in. Jones has raised more than any Democrat has, I think, since Siegelman ran for re-election for governor. But he ain't raising 80 million like Jamie Harrison. My understanding is he's raised 10 million in Q3. So I mean, he's certainly raising. God, that's still bananas. He's still raising a lot of money and I think has been able to you know, raise a lot of money from small donors. Now, they're not necessarily all from Alabama. But I do think we've talked about what is against Jones from 2017 versus today. But I think some of the things that are maybe working for him are you know, you do have the beginnings of a party infrastructure, which he did not have in 2017. You do have more money on hand. You have the incumbency. But, you know, in some ways, the COVID pandemic may also play to his advantage in that he has used his TV time in some ways as PSAs about COVID. And he has certainly been able to focus his message a lot more on rural hospital closures, Medicaid expansion than maybe, you know, he would have been able to do in, a, in another time period. And probably not for nothing, but being the incumbent, helping people get their $1,200 checks or helping people get unemployment or, you know, one of the things that traditionally your old school Democrats were always so good at and Republicans that won in the solid South and then stayed, it was all about constituent services. And the best ad that I've seen Jones run, I saw last night was where it's just people talking about him and saying, and it even says we gave him a chance, you know, so, so, so it speaks to that, like, eh, we weren't sure about this Democrat, but he's done a good job. And it's people that look like Alabama. And I think that that message, I'm trying not to be a focus group of one, <laughs> but, you know, we all do. But it's how Joe Manchin won in West Virginia, you know. Right, yeah. right. Exactly. I do feel like if they could get Tuberville back on his heels a little bit, that they could slip up and win it. Not to use a football metaphor, but, you know, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. If they had the equivalent of putting Tua in, I remember the 2017 championship in 2018, but 2017 season. And I just remember like, and then one more score and then one more score. And I think that that's a good metaphor for how you got to beat Tuberville. You don't have to win with a Hail Mary. You can win with chunks of yards. And frankly, you can beat him by being better at the craft of campaigning, I think. Because they, they don't really, I haven't seen anything from them. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it was it was a long, slow fall for the Alabama Democratic Party. You know, I mean, and obviously 
parties realigned. We've talked about that on this podcast. You know, the Alabama Democratic Party is not what it was in 1910, but part of that long, slow or fall. Or 1990, John. Or 1990, yeah. You know, they, they kind of got lazy. They got used to winning. They stopped campaigning. They stopped investing in party infrastructure. And, you know, it, it's still early, but I do think that you're starting to see some of that from the Alabama Republican Party already, too, where it's just, oh, the R next to my name is enough, and we don't have to do what it takes in order to keep winning. The funny thing is, is that that was actually part of what kept them from getting power for a long time was that they just thought that if they screamed, he's an ultra, they just kept adding adjectives to liberal or he's a liberal (laughs) or he's a radical liberal. He's a San Francisco liberal. He's an ultra radical. So, you know, and it's like, okay, but then when he's the guy that you see, you know, down the street, or he's the guy that when you can't get your social security check or whatever issue it is, you need your road paved or whatever, you know, and he fixes your problem, then you don't necessarily believe that he's an ultra leftist, right? And so I just think that the Republicans, and I I told a friend of mine this, I said, here's the problem. When you have all these offices, your power base is split. And so you have, then you have rivalries within the party. And then you got guys that can't get through the structure and they go, you know what? All things being equal, I'll just go be a Democrat you know, or I'll beat you as an independent or whatever that is. And and I think that that arrogance is is definitely a danger. What I'm worried about is, let's say all these candidates that we're talking about lose, does it then set us back another eight or 10 years? Yeah. And that was a question, you know, I had for Chris England, the state party chair. If what seems the most likely scenario happens where Doug Jones loses, you know, is there anything that Democrats get excited about in 2022? Because they didn't get excited about Walt Maddox. They haven't shown the same level of excitement in any of the congressional races. People on the left are certainly excited to show up and vote against Donald Trump. They were very excited to show up and vote against Roy Moore. I think more people are excited to show up and vote for Doug Jones than they probably thought they were going to be in 2017 when he looked like he could be probably a more center-right Democrat like Joe Manchin. That's been the biggest surprise to me from Doug Jones' campaign is that, you know, he's not campaigning like a Southern Democrat. He's not campaigning like a Southern white Democrat, I should say. Yeah, I think for Doug, it's one of those things where if you're going to do, you know, I think he said this at the beginning, like, I'm just going to have to be true to myself. For a long time, that was actually like a way to win. You could be the one guy that, you know, I don't agree with him, but at least he sticks to his guns. You know, the, the question is, is he is he too far out of the, the mainstream thinking? And, and I think that the RGB or uh, ACB thing, I don't think that that helps him. No, it probably doesn't. But if the judicial vote happens before election day, I guess people may hold that against him. But it's also there's less urgency to vote somebody to win the court. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people get distracted by outside events. And frankly, what I always tell people is, you know, and they'll ask me about what is this campaign doing? I don't know. And I don't care. What I know about is lining my guys up and executing and beating you. And frankly, I think that that's really what what the Jones people, you know, need to be doing. And I, and I, and they probably are, you know, I, I'm just not privy to the information, but I would be running hard counts wherever I could and figuring out people that were Trump voters that are now Jones voters and trying to, you know, find those needles and haystacks in these other places. And, and frankly, getting them to request their absentee ballot and vote early, which they are doing. I know the, the democratic party and I was to say the Democrats 
are doing a fair amount of that. Like, hey, request your ballot, get it in. And really what they're doing is banking votes. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you were talking about the setbacks of if Jones loses. And as far as precedent in Alabama, I mean, you can kind of look to the accidental election of Guy Hunt. You know, it wasn't necessarily a bellwether where all of a sudden Republicans started winning statewide, but it kind of predicted the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, it signaled that there was at least enough frustration with the Democratic Party as it existed at that time, that if they kept doing things, you know, that were corrupt, that if they kept doing things that alienated the public, that they couldn't just take those votes for granted. And, you know, the, the Alabama Republican Party has compressed a lot of scandals in the last 10 years at, at almost every level of, of government. And so, you know, I, I don't think Democrats are going to start winning statewide elections in 2022, but it, it's not out of the realm of possibility of 2026 2030. I think you're right. And I also think depending on how um, redistricting looks, you got to find maybe a couple House districts or Senate districts that you can invest in and win because, you know, success begets success. It's one of those weird things where it's not sexy. And that's the thing. Party building isn't sexy. Rebuilding something, it's not sexy, but it is one of those things where you got to got to go in and do like the grunt work. And that's what, frankly, that's what everybody like gets wrong about what, what I do is, you know, they think, oh, are you, you know, when are you going to go to the White House? It's like, yeah, most likely never. I make my living, you know, on the smaller things. I make my living getting mayors elected and, and county commissioners and state senators and stuff like that. And part of it is getting people to realize that those people have more control over your life than, you know, even Donald Trump does to a certain degree. And then it's, can you attract the investment you know, in those races. And my guess is that they have, you know, so that Chris England's a smart guy. My guess is, is that, that him and Wade Perry and those guys have some plans for the future win or, you know, Jones wins or loses. And look, you can, you can say the opposite of what we said earlier is true. What if Jones loses by five points, which is a victory, frankly, it's a moral victory at least, but then all these other races that we're talking about do win. And then it's like, Hey, it is enough to invest in those places and reap the whirlwind. So we can't just abandon Alabama. And frankly, I think one of the things that you guys talk about a lot is like the divide of our country. Is this, you know, partisan divide, this regional divide and all this. And like, if one party says we just can't win in this region, then that is going to add to the enmity of, you know, people in that region against that party and against the rest of the country. And it's not healthy. Yeah. And there's another side of this. And this is something that I, I think really gets lost in the shuffle because people think of the job of the senator is either to support or reject the president's agenda. And that's obviously not the job of the senator. You know, early in my career, before I got into journalism, I worked for a, a public affairs firm in D.C. and I was working with some banking clients. And this was in 2010, right after the Dodd-Frank bill. And, you know, the banks were notably frustrated and trying to push back on some topics like interchange reform and stuff like that. And I remember that they were going to do some small business programs in states that they felt were advantageous for their agenda. And at the time, I was, you know, from Birmingham, Alabama, and I was thinking, well, Spencer Bacchus is the financial services chair. And Richard Shelby is the ranking member on banking. So why don't we do a program in, in Birmingham? And they said, well, John, you know, Alabama 
we know how they're going to vote. There's no, there's no reason to spend any money in Alabama uh, as a business because you're not going to get any bang for your buck. And we have this moment right now that is so unique compared to the rest of the country where you have a senator from both parties, where all of a sudden it makes sense for Facebook to build a data center in Alabama. It makes sense for Google to spend money here. It makes sense for businesses to spend money here because, you know, all else equal, if you could spend your money in Tennessee or in Alabama and you're worried about a debate to regulate the Internet, well, you're going to spend money where you can influence people on both sides of the aisle. And I think Shelby recognizes that. And that that's part of why he has, depending on who you talk to behind closed doors, worked pretty hard with Jones and for Jones. And, and I think that that's something that, like, we never really saw with Sessions and Shelby. I mean, Shelby is a force unto his own as appropriations chair. He's going to always have that influence. But I think being able to influence the agenda of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party at the same time makes Alabama unique compared to the rest of the South right now. Yeah, and I think this campaign would be different if Tuberville hadn't won the primary or the runoff. It would just be because you would have something to run against, you know, except for fear of the thumb. And so it, it makes it very difficult because he doesn't really have any positions except for he's going to support the president and, and Jones doesn't. And, you know, in some ways he's a cipher. And then in other ways, like it does make it, I, I think, harder to make things stick, especially when like if Trump wins by 55 or 65, he's still probably, you know, unless something very weird happens, he's going to win the state. And so, it, you know, it, it, it harks back to, you know, the early 2000s when, when you knew Bush was going to win and you had to just kind of figure out how to peel off part of his coalition and that seemed doable then. And it just doesn't seem, you know, his, his voters seem pretty intractable. Now it's a weird dynamic in that, like who the heck is persuadable? Yeah. You got to hope for suburbs in Huntsville and, and Birmingham and Mobile and then the college towns, you know, that's what he's got to bank on. But is that enough? We'll see. David, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, John. It was great. I really appreciate it. Coming up after the break, Chris England discusses how Doug Jones' election led to a revolt against the longtime power brokers of the Alabama Democratic Party. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Representative Chris England, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Uh, thank you for having me. We've been looking forward to it. You know, I think it would probably be fair to say that there were fewer places in America where it was tougher to be a Democrat than Alabama, let's say 2010 to 2016. The party had been swept out of power, you know, power that the party had held for a century in 2010 and hadn't really been able to win anything since then. The kind of up and comer of 2010, Arthur Davis, publicly left the party um, and became a Republican and endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012. And it seemed like people were kind of fleeing that party. 2017, Doug Jones, who hadn't held office before, you know, he was known as as the prosecutor in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing case, you know, secures the Democratic nomination in what was kind of still considered to be a long shot race 
the Roy Moore allegations changed everything, I think. But even still, I remember media cycles all through 2017. Nobody thought Jones had a shot, really. Then he wins. And all of a sudden, every Southern race in the years since then, from Stacey Abrams to Espy to Gillum, you know, suddenly everybody's kind of like, oh, well, maybe the South is in play now. And that's kind of carried through today. Last week, we spoke with Jamie Harrison, and, you know, he's considered a long shot, but has a has a viable chance against Lindsey Graham. And we've seen a lot more money flow into the South. Do you think that do you think it's making a difference? Do you think the South is in play in a way that it hadn't been? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you bring up that whole um, Bentley Odyssey, considering that, you know, out of the blue today, he tweets about the special election that allegedly created all of this, these wonderful things that happened as if, you know, he just was a victim and all that. But no, I, I do. You, you kind of see it. And it's more or less like a just a almost a, a, just a confluence of different things that are now creating this sort of energy and space for progressive thought in the South. I mean, you're talking about Doug winning in 2017, which made a lot of things seem possible. And then you look over Stacey Abrams, who, you know, uh, depending on who you talk to, should have won that election in Georgia, but for the fact that the current governor was the secretary of state and, you know, had some built-in advantages that it looks like he took advantage of. Uh, and you look at Andrew Gillum, who lost uh, in a very close race. And then now you look at Mississippi Senate race. You look at Georgia Senate race, where I saw a poll today where both the special election and the regular election look to be within the margin. And then depending on the polls you look at in South Carolina, it appears that Jamie Harrison may, you know, may be winning currently. I don't think anybody would ever thought that in an Alabama Senate race, that the Democratic incumbent has more money than the Republican and is up on TV constantly, routinely, much more than the Republican has the opportunity or the resources to be. So obviously there is something there uh, that has created some belief in our area. And I think you see it manifesting in campaigns across the Southeast in places where you wouldn't traditionally see you know, um, heavy democratic involvement. Another thing that's happened locally since 2017, the Alabama State Democratic Party, you know, was kind of in, in tatters. I think it would be fair to say they had gotten kind of used to the advantage of the incumbency over the course of decades. We're still kind of running on the machine, you know, initially maybe built by George Wallace, but then really kind of run by Joe Reed and Paul Hubbard and had just kind of stopped running races. They just were kind of running on on fumes. I don't know if it's fair to say that Jones's election accelerated a change in power and resulted in the ouster of Nancy Worley, but it's certainly fair to say that it was a very public and very ugly battle for power. You are now the chair of the Alabama Democratic Party. Walk us through from your perspective how that whole process went. Because you weren't initially put up for chair. No, I mean, there were several people that uh, expressed interest from the beginning and honestly, you know, to put this whole thing in, in the appropriate context, when I got first elected in 2006, I walked into a Democratic supermajority. But it wasn't the Democratic supermajority in the truest sense of the word, because if you look at some of the legislation that had actually had worked its way through the system, um, just for example, you know, our standard ground law in Alabama was actually, you know, a Democratic initiative. 
many of the criminal justice reforms that are now, you know, kind of popular and gaining momentum are actually pushing back on a lot of the things that were adopted during majority Democrats and many other other things. So when you uh, President Obama selection kind of brought some issues to bear. And if you watch the Democratic Party through 2006 to 2010, you start to kind of get an idea that many people had begun to divest themselves of what a national Democrat was and created an Alabama Democrat that was much more local and ultimately much more personal, which meant that the candidate mattered more than the party did. So when there was a separation that was created when Republicans started branding and creating a very catchy, short message that separated, you know, identity from the actual politician, now the party actually mattered. You saw many Democrats who had been in office, white Democrats who had been in office, retire rather than run again. And you saw many others just get beat off of, uh, you know, just straight up party affiliation. So you went from 2006 to a Democratic supermajority into 2010, a Democratic super minority that was further entrenched four years later. So you dual track that with the fact that many white Alabamians who initially had identified as Democrat were moving to the Republican Party. It also manifested itself within the party apparatus as well. So the party apparatus, SDEC, was kind of was atrophying overall because many it was shedding many of its white Democratic members which also in turn empowered, further empowered, you know, Dr. Reed and many others who have been on the, who have been stalwarts, very loyal Democrats for the entire time. So I think many people kind of get that lost in the sense that, you know, Joe Reed, Dr. Reed is the minority caucus chair. It is his responsibility to make sure that the black Democrats have a voice in the seat at the table in the state democratic executive committee. But I think you're very correct when you say that many people that had been in power for such a long time had gotten sort of starting to rest on their morals a bit and allowed the Republicans to you know, sneak in through the back door. And by the time we kind of realized what was going on, it was too late. So now if you kind of work your way towards 2017 and Doug Jones wins, it becomes a little bit easier when you have a sitting U.S. senator who needs to be reelected to now get the DNC and many others to realize that we have to have a working party apparatus in order for, you know, uh, Democratic candidates to be successful. So I think many people begin to understand that we had a pathway, we had a very narrow pathway, we had a pathway to change leadership and also a very narrow pathway in order to create a foundation to where we are in 2020 working hard to get Senator Doug Jones reelected and many other Democrats up and down the ticket. So it required a change in leadership and it required an investment by the Democratic National Committee. It required an investment by the chairman, Chairman Perez, who was very helpful in this process, but it also required a realization of the public at large that in order to be successful and competitive and actually to really give Alabama another perspective as far as politics are concerned, that you had to have a viable second voice. You had to have a viable Democratic Party. And I think what you've seen also from November 2nd up until now is that there were many people who were on the outskirts waiting for an opportunity to become involved and just needed an avenue to do so. So that meant with people who didn't want to give money are now actually contributing. 
people who wanted to volunteer but were afraid to do so at the time are now actually engaged in volunteering. You, you're hearing many people who are more interested in helping message in the South to make us successful and to not only try to convince people that we used to be Democrats to come back to the fold, but more or less now actually going after those disaffected voters, the ones that have given up, who now have seen some hope and are coming back to the fray who were always Democrats, but had just basically given up because they thought it was such a lost cause. So when you see Doug Jones win in 2017, when you see the party change, leadership change, it's just two things that kind of verify that there is a viable Democratic initiative, momentum, and leadership in the state of Alabama. So now it's worth the investment. So here we are in 2020, 37 days out, and we have, I mean, an infrastructure in the party that has fundraised and has generated enough revenue and funding in order to hire what used to be just two and a half, and we'll say two and a half employees, I say a full-time one, and then there was a couple of part-time folks, but now almost 50. Yeah, so we have, you know, well over a, a million dollars in our in our coffers right now to prepare to not only go after, you know, November 3rd of this year, but to build a foundation to go after 2022 as well. So you know, I would love to say it's all because of my dynamic and charismatic leadership, but I know a lot. I know better than that. There are actually people who were just chomping at the bit to get back involved and get into this movement and see if we could make realize the potential that Alabama has, and meanwhile get Doug reelected and create a viable Democratic Party. But I'd be remiss though if I did not mention that there are a number of other things happening at the same time that drive this train forward, including a president that is divisive but motivating at the same time. You would love to say intellectually we could have these great discussions and I change your mind on something, but generally what pushes people a lot faster and a lot farther is being mad about something, being pissed off about something. And President Trump is very good at pissing people off and driving them to work to get him out of office. So I think all these things are working together to what you see right now in Alabama and across the country. Now, you know, I want you to bear with me for a minute because I know as the leader of the party, it's your job to tell me that Doug Jones can and will win in November. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that he doesn't. It would seem that in December, your job is suddenly going to be a lot harder because, you know, if you look at how long it took the Republicans to become a viable party again in Alabama. I mean, it took 100 years. And so how do you take all of that energy and all of those competing attentions and influences from December 20 through November 2022? How do you keep that momentum going forward when you don't have somebody at the top of the ticket? I think you have to demonstrate continued competence, which means that despite the results of the election, you know, we have demonstrated the ability to do all the things that a party is required to do in order to be competitive. So people, your best and your brightest, who generally don't want to engage in becoming candidates for political offices, see that there's an infrastructure in place and they can get assistance when they need it. If Senator Jones were to lose in November, which, you know, I don't, I think we're actually closing that quite quickly. You know, Coach Trevor Bill is used to sitting on leads, but I think he may be, uh, he may wake up on November 3rd, like uh, many of his football games, and find out that he lost. But in the event that that does happen, I think 
We fundraised to make sure that we can run hard all the way until November 3rd, but uh, we also make sure that we create a foundation so we continue to build beyond November 3rd and start working on the Republican supermajority and also statewide offices in uh, 2022. Now, you're in an unenviable position. You probably listened to the um, Reply All episodes about the Alabama Democratic Party and, and that whole process. And for listeners who haven't, you know, they kind of walk through the history of the Alabama Democratic Party and, and the fight for the top. You know, they really kind of frame it as a fight between Joe Reed and at the time, Tabitha Eisner. You do continue to have a number of people kind of vying for your role, vying for leadership of the party, whether it's Nancy Worley and Joe Reed, or whether it's, you know, other Democratic leaders and activists who want to have a seat at the table or who want to have a seat at the head of the table. How do you mend those fences? How do you build one party underneath, you know, the Alabama Democratic Party? You have a bunch of people who are who are trying to compete for leadership. How do you unite that on, around a common goal? It's just that you figure out what the common goal is and then try to wrap everyone's ambition around realizing that you can get where you want if you follow that pathway. And I think it's been almost palpable at this point that here recently, especially, that the common goal of getting Doug Jones reelected and getting Donald Trump out of office has made a lot of people set aside some of their differences to work towards getting that, to making that happen. I think you've seen it throughout history. There's a galvanizing goal that transcends the differences that people think they have in order to get something accomplished. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, November 3rd, Doug wins or loses, everybody kind of, you know, continues to sing that same song. And I've thought about this in, in, in the terms of that I may not be that person. I mean, I may have been, you know, there are oftentimes there are transitional periods, who you are, who you need to be at the time in order to get you somewhere else. And I'm fully comfortable with that concept because, you know, just kind of being focused on the larger goal of having a competitive Democratic Party, you have to also come to terms that it may, you may not be that person that achieves that objective, but you might be the person that helps us get there. Do I understand you saying that you might not choose to keep leading the party? I mean, if it becomes clear to me that, you know, it's uh, it may be better for um, someone else who can continue to mend some of those fences and build or rebuild some of those uh, relationships, somebody's better for that. You know, I'm not the kind of person that says it has to be me. Not that I'm not committed to this, because in order to get to this point, there are a lot of sacrifices have to be made. I mean, if you talk to my wife right now, you'd understand, like, it took some talking in order to convince her to go along with this. But so, no, we're fully committed. But at the same time, I think leadership requires you also to have a full perspective on where your role is in all of it as well. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was I think many people begin who went into this, sort of, I guess, quote unquote, conflict that created the change in leadership thought that the conflict itself was a recent phenomenon. I think what makes me unique in this role is that all the parties that were in conflict, essentially, and what created me was actually created in the 80s when my father and many others like Michael Figures and Hank Sanders were struggling to, on one side, maintain you know, Black representation on the State Democratic Executive Committee, but at the same time, make sure that they were all properly and adequately represented at the table to determine who, that, who those people were. 
So when you realize that my dad and his friends created the New South Coalition because of a problem that they had with Dr. Reed and his friends, you kind of get a better perspective on just how long and deeply entrenched this sort of problem has been to the point where when I got elected in 2006, you know, one of the main people that I had to deal with when I got elected through the SDC was actually Dr. Reed. And one of the most amazing parts of the story is, uh, I think, that Patricia Todd and I, who is, by the way, the first LBGTQ vice chair of the LMA Democratic Party, and me being the first black chair of the LMA Democratic Party, our political careers actually started on the same day in 2006. And we both had to work our way around Joe Reed to get here. So, I mean, just, you know, just one of the amazing components of the story itself, people need to understand that this wasn't just a, a recent phenomenon. This has been a struggle within the Democratic Party race for decades. And which ultimately, when again, like I said, you, know, you always have to come to terms with your own mortality in certain things. You, you have to recognize that, again, you may not be the person that's able to bury 20 to 30 to 40 years of a conflict. It may have to be someone that starts fresh, but it doesn't diminish what had to happen in November of last year because it had to happen. But in, in its proper context, it may not be the ultimate end to the story. Another thing that is probably on the minds of a lot of our listeners is, of course, the Supreme Court. No matter how Doug Jones votes on her nomination, it seems likely that Amy Coney Barrett will be confirmed as a Supreme Court nominee. And that puts the South and the country as a whole, but it puts the South in particular in a very interesting place. Because if you look back at you know the long arc of history, almost every progressive action that's happened in the South has happened because of the courts. If you have a 6-3 conservative supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court, it seems like that legal strategy is kind of off the table. You know, the strategy that motivated the NAACP for so long, the strategy that's motivated LGBT organizations for so long. We wouldn't have interracial marriage. We wouldn't have same-sex marriage. We wouldn't have desegregated schools. You know, so much that I think we kind of take for granted of 2020 life in the South was reliant on court decisions. Now, it's possible that things would be different in 2022. But it seems fair to say that in order for progressive actions to happen, there's going to need to be a viable legislative strategy in the South. You know, I mean, I look at the 2020 slate in Alabama. Not every congressional race has a Democratic candidate. We look back at 2018 and not every state house and state Senate race had a Democratic candidate. When you mentioned earlier that it took 100 years um, for the Republicans to, you know, take over, there's also another part of that. It meant that when the Republicans won legislative House seats, they were also winning House seats that were designed by Democrats. So when you put that in its context, that meant that they had to overcome what the political process put in front of them, which means that as your numbers diminish in legislatures across the country, that also means that your ability to draw maps that may be friendly to a political uh, party also become less and less likely. So when you mentioned that the strategy has to change, it does. And, you know, as you said, the court system had always become that final arbiter. And it was it's really supposed to be the only place that determines equality for you in every other aspect, whether it be in a classroom, whether it be in a courtroom, the third, the independent, 
impartial third party, but it's supposed to be a judge that said the law and the facts equal this result. And it is clear, though, that the American public's, I guess, the foundation of our American judicial system is sort of fractured in the sense that people believe that the court system should only render decisions that they agree with, which means also that, you know, since all I do now is watch my son play Little League Baseball, it's almost like choosing your umpire based upon what you want strikes to strikes and balls to look like. So if, we, if we're going to continue any progress in what's important to us, uh, meaning, you know, protecting voting rights, for example, because that's, that's certainly on the ballot in the future, and you see these little pockets of, of small forest fires burning in different parts of the country because of that struggle. Or if you want to even talk about something as basic as healthcare, because, you know, as soon as the election is over with, one of the first cases that's going to be in front of them is the one that could potentially overturn the Affordable Care Act. And then also, you know, people like to talk about Roe versus Wade in the context of it creating the right to abortion, but it was actually a decision that was decided on much larger grounds about right to privacy. So, you're, I mean, it's going to be difficult to, to surgically go into a decision and remove your right to, a, you know, for a woman to choose, but at the same time, uh, cobble together what the right to privacy continues to look like. So all of these things are now going to be thrust upon leg- state legislatures across the country. Because if, you, if you're looking at where this could potentially go, and they say this is a state's right to issue, then you will see legislatures across the country battling about a woman's right to choose in, in many other areas. So our strategy doesn't have to just change. It also has to evolve. And you're going to have to do what the Republicans engaged in, in over 100 years. And maybe we can do it a little bit quicker because of the money that's involved and the, and the momentum we have. But um, you're going to have to go back over the same road that they traveled and avoid the potholes and the pitfalls and create success over the maps that they create. When you watch congressional races, for example, you see that many of the seats that are now going from red to blue were designed specifically to protect the Republican incumbent, but the overall platform became so um, reactionary that they decided to reject what the desired outcome. So you, you know it's possible, and so now you just have to figure out for your area, your state, how to uh, manipulate that plan to fit what you're, you're trying to accomplish. You know, I, I was struck watching the Democratic National Convention this year when Senator Jones gave his address, you know, to see a white male Democrat from Alabama, you know, standing in the Civil Rights Institute, giving a full-throated defense of civil rights, advocating for the expansion of voting rights. It's very different than we've seen white Democrats run in the South, even in 2018. You know, it's very different than Joe Manchin is running. It's very different than Bashir ran in Kentucky. John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. It seems more of a piece with some of the campaigns you're hearing from from a Stacey Abrams or from Jamie Harrison. Is that going to be the strategy in Alabama? You know, have we have we rejected the the yellow dog Democrats that you were talking about from 2006 through 2010? Or, you know, is it going to kind of be what you were discussing of varying politician to politician being local and, and kind of personality driven? Well, you know, all politics are local. Unless Trump is on the ticket. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so it has to start there. You have to know you have to know your people. So obviously you're gonna to have to 
measure your message by looking to the needs of your constituency, right? But also, you don't win elections anymore, in my opinion, trying to out-Republican of Republicans, because what you're actually doing is talking to people that have probably already rejected your position, and you're undermining your base by turning your back on them, essentially, and keeping and making them stay home. And so, you know, you have to also keep in context that, you know, Alabama Democrats, Alabama Republicans are not like the rest of the country. I mean, we're different. Because I would imagine me, myself, as a liberal in Alabama, but probably somewhat conservative in California or New York. Because, you know, as Alabamians, we take certain things for granted that they think are just absolutely outright ridiculous. Like guns, for example. Guns here are part of our way of life. And that's something that we understand. You come to Alabama, there are two days out of the week that you don't do anything. Wednesday evenings and Sundays. And I'm pretty sure other parts of the country don't really take that the same way. And again, race, racism. We have made uh, Alabama for a long time very, a very comfortable space for racists, bigots, homophobes, you name it. So not to suggest that racism here is different from anywhere else, but we're so accustomed to it that we make certain types of things comfortable here. There's not an outright rejection of yellow dog Democrats, but there is an emphasis for them to evolve just like the rest of the country should be evolving and starting to adopt some of the things that we know because our country is becoming more inclusive. It's becoming more diverse. And the reason why I believe Republicans, their ranks are shrinking is because they are fighting against what's inevitable. There are more people here, which means that diversity is required. But when diversity is required, diversity of thought is also necessary. You have to be willing to expand your table and listen to things that initially will make you uncomfortable. So I'm proud when I hear Senator Jones stand up and say something like, you know, Black Lives Matter and say it without reservation because that's where we're headed. I don't think we watch George Floyd be murdered in real time on national TV to return to the days where it's okay to fly Confederate flags and celebrate racists and bigots, you know, those two things cannot peacefully coexist. We can't allow them to do that anymore. So when Doug Jones, as a U.S. senator, speaks from that position, he makes those yellow dog Democrats have to come to terms with the ever-changing landscape of their own party. I want to be in a situation where people have to make that choice and have those uncomfortable conversations because there's no other way to move forward. And again, I'm glad that Senator Jones is speaking those things. And I'm glad that Stacey Abrams forced those conversations in Georgia to the point where her race was 50-50. And I'm glad in Mississippi that, you know, black athletes are making them come to terms with their uh, racist history to the point where they say, we're not going to play until you change that flag. Our narratives have to change. Our politics have to evolve. Because if we don't want Alabama to continue to be the place where the dead continue to bury the living, then we have to make people uncomfortable and have these conversations and push this envelope. So when Doug Jones speaks, it is not a foreign language. He is speaking to a majority of us and appealing to our better angels to continue Alabama's evolution. Representative England, thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. 
We don't know what will happen in November, but we're seeing the level of money pour into the South that has historically gone into places like the Midwest. If the South actually becomes a region of swing states, that may change the level of investment in the community and also the caliber of politician we start to see on the campaign trail. This week on Reckon's Instagram, we asked our followers what's motivating them to vote. We heard from at Barefoot Bet, or maybe at Barefoot Betty, who said, I want fresh faces. I want younger representatives. I want our government to go back to being about the American people and not special interests or lobbyists. Tell us what's driving you this election season by tweeting at us or finding us on Instagram. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was produced and edited by Abby Gibson and Steph Colburn at Edit Audio. If you like our show, please share it with your friends and help us get the word out and have better conversations about the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning.